The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, About times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light, and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Thanks, Sashi. As we come around the world, how about we pray? Father, your word is living and active. By your word, you created the universe. And by your word, you gave us new life. And so, Lord, as we come under your word, as we sit under the preaching of your word, I pray that you'll move through it, Lord, to bring about life, to bring about hope, to bring about transformation. And so, Lord God, we're really hopeful, we're expecting great things as we hear your word and respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to kick this message off by giving you a scenario, an opening illustration. So, imagine that you're an employer 
and you've got two ladies in your office, and these ladies, in many regards, many many respects, are similar. So they're they're a similar age, they have a similar educational level, they even have a similar temperament. And then you have them into your office, and you explain the role to them, the job. You say, okay, you are part of an assembly line, and all you are going to do for eight hours a day, over and over and over again, eight hours a day, five days a week for this year, is take part A, put it into slot B, and then pass it on to the person next to you. That's it. Part A, slot B, the person next to you. That's the job. Then you put these two ladies in identical rooms, at different rooms, but they're identical in many respects. They have identical ventilation, lighting, and temperature. And also, you give these two ladies the exact number of breaks per day. And so everything pretty much about this job is identical. And these ladies are very, very similar. But there's one main difference. You tell them, look, to the first lady you say, at the end of this year, I'm going to pay you $40,000. So clearly you're a generous boss. And to the second lady, you say, I'm going to pay you at the end of this year $40 million. And so the big difference, of course, is the size of the pot on the other side of the rainbow, right? 40000 as opposed to $40 million. Now, three weeks into the role, The first lady, over lunch one afternoon, turns to the second lady and says something like, this job is doing my head in. It's so mundane. It's so boring. It's just brain-numbing. Part A, slot B, pass it on. Uh, Is it doing your head in like it's doing my head in? Well, the second lady will respond by saying something like this. No, in fact, I think the working conditions are reasonable. In fact, I sing and I whistle while I work. Part A, in the slot B, I pass it on. Part A, the slot B, I pass it on. Now, church, what does this scenario illustrate? What does this illustration demonstrate? Well, it demonstrates something that we're going to reflect on this morning, something that's very pivotal and really important. And that is this. Here's the principle. What you believe about the future radically controls and alters how you live in the present. That, that's the principle. It's so important, I'll, I'll repeat it. What, what you think, what I think, what we think as a church about the future, the future, Christ, his coming, remarkably and radically controls and even transforms how we live in the present. And so as we turn to this passage, which is mainly about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're going to explore together growing in hope. Growing in hope, growing in Christian hope. If you're new with us today, we kicked off a little while ago a new sermon series called Growing In. And we've been moving through sequentially this book, First Thessalonians. And we've been noticing certain virtues that we as Christians need to mature in and develop in. And so when we kicked off the series, we looked at growing in identity, learning who we actually are in Jesus and how that ought to shape and influence our lives. And then following that, we've looked at various virtues such as authenticity and resilience, love. And last week, we reflected on growing in purity or growing in holiness. So this week, growing in Christian hope, which is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is not wishful thinking, like, I hope it won't rain tomorrow, or I hope, <laughs> sorry, Joy, the Paramount Eels are going to win the title this year, right? They've got off to a great start, a flying start. I think it's going to be that year. I think that's a pipe dream, okay? I think the storm have it in the bag already. Christian hope 
is this deep-seated assurance, this certainty that what God has promised will actually come to pass. And so metaphorically speaking, you kind of push the the, the chips of your life over to this certain hope that Christ is going to bring at his second coming, the certain hope that we're going to reflect on this morning. And so the question that I want us to reflect on is the how question. How do we actually grow in hope, Christian hope? How do we actually exercise the muscle of hope in our lives so that our present Christian lives are radically transformed and wonderfully, positively affected? And so that's the question. In our text, I want to lift, I guess, three ideas, three principles out of our text that I think really speak to this whole question of growing in hope. And these are the three things. Number one, comprehension. We need to understand. Number two, contemplation. We need to be a people of deep reflection. And last, consolation. We need to be, continue to be a people of real encouragement. And so, comprehension first. I think it's really clear that Paul links in our text, verse 13 of chapter 4, he links having a joyful, patient anticipation to comprehension. He, he fuses the two together. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. That is, we don't want you to lack comprehension. We don't want you to lack understanding about what, he says, about those who, fall, uh, who sleep in death. Now, there's a backstory. We'll come to that in just a moment. But first, just see the link. So that, so we want you to understand, understand so that you may not grieve. You do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Can you see the link? Yeah? You see the link? If we're going to have joyful, patient anticipation and have hope, then we've got to understand. If we don't understand, then Paul says we might have, like the rest of mankind, no real deep-seated hope and certainty. Now, what was the backstory? Why were these believers stressing out here? They were fretting because some of their friends, their Christian friends and family members, had recently died. They had died. And yet Christ hadn't returned yet. And so some of these believers, this is, by the way, a healthy church in many respects, as we've been seeing week in, week out, but some of them were a bit concerned and bothered about their friends who had recently died because they were thinking, hold on, they're going to miss the heavenly boat. When when Jesus returns, well, our friends, they've died in the faith, and so what will that mean for them? Will they be lost for all eternity? And so they had this big question, and it was concerning them. They were despairing over it. And so what does Paul do? He brings in comprehension. He explains, hold on, no, this is actually what's going to happen at Christ's coming. And so he says in verse 14, he says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So there's the gospel slab. There's the foundation. Bang, straight in. No, no, no. Christ has died for us. He's risen for us, which means, he goes on, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so Paul's saying, hey, Yes, your friends, Christian friends, have died in the faith, but that does not mean their faith is dead. doesn't mean their faith is dead, because when Christ comes, he's going to bring your friends, your family members who have loved him, served him with him, and so don't stress. It's okay. But notice how he pastors them. He says, look, okay, I want you to have hope, and the way you're going to hope, have an increased measure of hope and certainty, is by actually understanding what's going to take place at Christ's second coming. 
others in the church, they were not stressed out so much about their friends, but others were stressed out about their own standing before God. Some of them were thinking, ah, okay, on that day when I stand before the throne of God, maybe he's actually going to judge me for my sin. Maybe he actually won't receive me into eternal dwellings. Maybe, maybe I'll be cast aside. And so they had doubts, they had concerns. And so Paul has to speak to that again by bringing true gospel comprehension, understanding, knowledge. And so notice what he says in verse 9. He says, for God... Guys, he's saying, for God did not appoint us, including them, including us here today, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, guys, don't despair. You love Jesus. You have true faith in him. Well, that day will find Christ receiving you, accepting you. You won't find him as a judgmental kind of God who's just going to cast you aside. No, he's already suffered wrath for you. He says that earlier in the, the, the book, in the, in, the chap, in the letter to the you know, Thessalonians. And so the principle here is that for us to grow in hope, that's what we're thinking about, growing in hope, we need actually to understand. We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand, in particular here in this context, the forward-back aspect of the gospel. Since this is true, Christ has died for us, he's alive, and we are in him, this means that when he comes, we're going to be with him. He's going to receive us to himself. And so we're to have this living hope as we understand more thoroughly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to help us, I guess, grow in hope and grow in this joyful, patient anticipation, I want us to think about, just for a moment, the second coming. Three questions in particular concerning the coming of Jesus Christ so that we have a better understanding because, again, comprehension is linked to anticipation, Christian hope. So three questions. Here's the first question. What exactly is it? What exactly is the second coming of Jesus? Well, it's not what some people think and some people say, just this ethereal coming of Christ where we will just experience, you know, we'll get the warm and fuzzies and we'll just experience the peace and the love of Jesus, but Jesus won't be around. It'll just be his, you know, the feeling of Jesus, the kind of the presence of Jesus, and that's all we're to expect concerning his second coming. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, For the Lord himself, underscore the word himself, will come down from heaven. That's the, the Lord himself, not his presence, but he himself. He's going to come actually, literally, in bodily form. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The apostles, they've been having meals with Jesus, singing with Jesus, looking into Jesus' faith, being embraced by Christ, enjoying Jesus' company, and then they've just beheld him ascend. He's ascended into glory, and they were completely mesmerized. They're standing, staring into the clouds as they watch this risen, literal Christ ascend, and two angels appear, and what do they say? They say, guys, the way you've just seen Jesus ascend will be the same way he will come again. He will come the same way. Namely, literally, bodily. Now, the point is, this should cause great hope in our lives. Because we're not going to receive something like Casper the Friendly. Christ is going to come in bodily form. We're actually going to see him. I don't know about you, but I really want to lock eyes with my 
Savior. I want to see him. I want to embrace him. I want to be embraced by him. Remember the Mercy Me song? You know, when I stand in your presence, what will my heart feel? Something's going on there. Will, my, will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you, be still when it goes on? And of course, the answer is yes. We will dance with Jesus and with the saints, with Christ. And we'll fall before this wonderful, glorified Christ, this Messiah, our Savior. We'll, we'll look at these grace God hands, which have purchased our eternal life. And we'll be with this resurrected Christ forever on a resurrected earth. And we're going to be in resurrected bodies ourselves. And so this is actually what's going to happen when Christ comes. He, he's going to come bodily and it's going to be wonderful. So that's the, that's the first question. What is it? Well, it's this bodily, literal return of Jesus Christ. Second question, what will he be like? What's it going to be like when Jesus returns? Well, our text highlights three things. Other New Testament passages say different things, other things that we can't you know, get into this morning, don't have time to, to discover and look at. But three main things here. Number one, Christ's coming will be unexpected. It'll be unexpected. Verse 2 of chapter 5, this is what Paul says. He says, you, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, he's not saying that Jesus is a thief. Right? Thieves are bad. They steal life. They take life. They steal your stuff. He's just saying the coming is, is like that because when thieves actually come and they rob your place, they come unannounced, right? I mean, a few years back, Nat and I, when we lived in Wentworthville, we got burgled, and this is what we noticed. <laughs> we noticed that the thief didn't leave a little sticky note kind of on our front door the day before he actually robbed our place, just saying, hey guys, I just you know, thought to give you a heads up that this time tomorrow I'm going to actually ransack your joint. We didn't get that note, because that's not how thieves operate, right? They come unannounced, and Jesus is coming for the world will be unannounced. But gloriously, wonderfully for us believers, this is our hope, verse 5, no, so verse 4, he says, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Because we'll be more alert, as we're going to see later, we'll be ready, and he's going to receive us into eternal dwellings. So that's the first thing. It's going to come unannounced. Secondly, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be sudden. Verse 3 of chapter 5. While people are saying, peace and safety, peace and safety, chill out. Everything's all right, mate. She'll be okay, mate. Peace and safety, peace and safety. Destruction will come on them. What? Suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And so people are going to be doing business deals. People will be in coffee shops enjoying a latte. People will be taking their kids to school. People will be sleeping. People will be doing sport. All kinds of things. And all of a sudden, Christ will come. He will come. And for those of us who have loved him, trust him, he's going to resurrect us, take us into glory. But for those who have not loved him, not followed him, not trusted him, then there's going to be destruction for them. And it will be sudden. And destruction, by the way, is not annihilationism. It's not annihilationism. It's ruin, eternal ruin outside of God's presence because in God's presence there's fullness of joy but outside of his presence is no joy. Hell is the place that God is not in and this is why it's going to be miserable. Their humanity will be destroyed in that sense because to be human is to know God and to know his love and so this will be their fate for all eternity. So this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be unexpected, it's unannounced, it's going to be sudden. And lastly, it's going to be cosmic. Christ's coming 
will be cosmic. That is, it will be noticeable. Now, verse 16 of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul uses three phrases to bring this same point home. He says, for the Lord himself, notice, will come down from heaven with, and he mentions three things, with a loud command, a loud command. It's not a secret, silent little tone, but with, with, with a voice, he says, secondly, of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. I think archangels are very loud. So when they shout, he's coming, everyone will hear. It's the trumpet of God when he sounds that blast. As Christ appears, the King of Kings, everyone is going to notice. You won't need CNN. You won't need Sky. You won't need the news channel because everyone on the face of the planet will witness the coming of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be some secret, silent thing like, oh, did you read in the local paper? Jesus actually appeared. No, no, it's not going to be that. Everyone is going to notice his coming. And so it's going to be unexpected, it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be cosmic, which leads to the third question. Okay, if it's going to be all these things, then what should our posture be as Christians? What should our attitude be towards Christ's coming? This is so serious when you think about it. We're talking about the coming of Messiah, the coming of the King. We're thinking about in Easter, how King Jesus, you know, this is so significant. And so how should we be? One word, are you ready? Eager, eager, ready. This idea, Christian idea of eagerness and readiness, even sober-mindedness, is emphasized again and again and again in the New Testament. And we see here emphasized by the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 5 of chapter 5. He says, You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. I love the identity language there. This is who we are. We are his children. We're of the light. We're not of darkness, which should mean, verse 6, so then, here's the implication, be who you are. Let us not be like others who are asleep. Jesus' second coming. Oh, Paul, the other one. It's a myth. It's not going to happen. The church, what the heck is the church going on about? Jesus no, not being like that, asleep. But, but let us be awake. Let us be awake and sober, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, he says. And so this whole idea of being alert, ready, eager, watchful, desiring Christ's return, come Lord Jesus, being sober-minded, ought to characterize our Christian lives. This should be our spiritual posture as we think about Christ's coming. Lord Jesus, come, come, come. Remember, right at the end of the Bible, last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in fact, it's the last verse almost, Revelation 22 verse 20, Jesus makes this promise that he's going to come to restore all things. He's going to make everything brand spanking new. And the church in response in verse 20 says, come Lord Jesus. That should be our cry as well. Come Lord Jesus. We think about the mess the world is in. As we think about human sin and human corruption, the injustice around the earth, as we see the misery and the brokenness and everything else that gets us down, we're to say, come Lord Jesus. This is to be our posture because he ought to be our hope. He is the answer. And so my question is, is this your posture? Is this my posture? This posture of eagerness, this posture of longing, come Lord Jesus. One writer, Wayne Grudem, he writes this about Christ's coming. This is a challenging statement, but he says this, To some extent then, 
the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives at the present, at the moment. Really, and to, to some extent, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return. What are you longing for? What are you really desiring? It's okay to desire and long for many things. That's the way God's made us to desire and long for many things. But what is the chief desire of your heart? What's your chief longing? What's the longing that sits above every other longing, that actually gives shape to all your other longings and desires? Is it this? Is it the coming of Jesus Christ? If it is, then your spiritual condition is one of health. But if it's not, well, you know the answer. This is challenging, is it not? (laughs) Because we do think about many things, we do desire many things, but are we desiring the apple of our eye, we're desiring Christ's return, realizing, hold on, you are our hope, we need you. And you see, this is why we need to comprehend these things, right? In this sermon, you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, I get it, I should desire him. Why, why? Because now there's been an increased level of comprehension, increased level of understanding. And I'm hoping, like truly hoping, that you're hoping more now that you're desiring more of him, that you're anticipating that wonderful day when he comes. So this is the first thing that we need. We need comprehension. But here's the thing, church. Understanding is only the beginning. Comprehension is where we need to begin, but comprehension needs to turn into something else if we're actually going to develop the muscle of hope, and that is contemplation. Secondly, contemplation. All right, true comprehension is when you actually start to reflect on the things that you know. That's true comprehension. You actually contemplate the things that you know about Christ and his coming and the gospel, and then it starts to transform you. Mere information, mere knowledge is not enough. Listen, I'll point to the text to show this to you. In verse 1 of chapter 5, this is what Paul says. He says, Now, brothers and sisters... About times and dates, all right? Christ's coming. We do not need to write to you. Why? Why don't I need to write to you? For, verse 2, you, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So hold on a minute. This is really insightful. This is a big point of application for each of us. They already knew to a large measure, to a large extent, what was going to happen. They knew They had knowledge upstairs, church. They had comprehension, but here they were as a church still fretting about their friends who had died, and also some of them were fretting about appearing in the presence of God. Will he accept me? Will he? Why? They knew. Well, surely this shows us that mere knowledge is not enough. To know things is important, but something else is needed. The knowledge needs to be enfleshed. It actually needs to turn into something that's actually going to transform our lives needs to be influence our lives and and how does that happen that's the question my answer contemplation contemplation we actually need to reflect on the things that we already know and so not it's not about mainly adding new knowledge 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 that's helpful but the main thing is actually sitting with the knowledge we already know and hammering out the implications of the gospel in our lives so that we actually grow in anticipation we grow in hope and so just to help us do that i want us to reflect on two things that you already know but I encourage us to reflect on them and contemplate them more. Two things that our text draws out. Number one, God's commitment to you. 
Right? God's commitment. God's commitment. His promise to accept you. His promise to resurrect you. Namely, look at verse 14 with me. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe, listen, so we believe that God will, what's that the language? That's the language of what? Faithfulness. That's the language of his commitment. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Christ. This is, this is his yes, his resounding yes. Hey, you are mine. And if you die in Christ, this is the certain promise you are going to be resurrected with him. It's God's commitment to you. What about verse 15? According to the Lord's word. His word of what? Promise. Remember when Jesus made that astounding promise in John chapter 14, where he says, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You've got to make it personal, church. Personal. He's going to prepare a place for you, Luke. He's going to prepare a place for you, Doug. He's going to prepare a place for you. And it's going to be incredible. It's going to be sublime. And then Jesus makes this promise, and I will come back, and I will take you home. (laughs) I'll take you to myself. That's his word. His word of promise. And again, to the degree you, we actually contemplate that, his promise, his commitment to us will be the measure of hope and anticipation we'll experience in our present lives. Yeah? Can you see? So God's commitment. Secondly, God's company. God's company. Really, what is heaven? What is it? What is glory? It's being with God. That's what it ultimately it's dwelling with him. I love what the Apostle Paul says in the latter half of verse 17. He says, and, and, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Just, just pause. Just think about that. You'll be with your Lord, your Savior forever. What happens in your heart when you reflect on that? You're going to be with your Lord forever. What about verse 10 of chapter 5? He died for us. Thank you, Jesus. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together, the people of God, with him. With him. You see, what will make heaven heaven is Jesus. Heaven is going to be jaw-droppingly spectacular. It's going to be incredible. Can you imagine just for a moment what it's going to be like with no curse? No human corruption, no human depravity, no evil heart, no wickedness. You know, as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, now we know in part, but then we shall know as we're fully known. We'll see him, we'll marvel at his mercy and, 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 and eternal life. It's just going to be that. It's just wonder after wonder after wonder after wonder. And yet all those wonders will be nothing compared to the wonder of Christ. Him, seeing him in all his dazzling wonder and glory. And so this is what heaven is. It's being with Jesus for all eternity, the Lord forever. And again, the more you contemplate that, the more you reflect on that. Wow, I'm going to be with Jesus. Guess what will happen? Hope will intensify in your life. You'll have more certainty, more assurance. And what will be the result of this intensified hope and assurance? Two things. One, contentment. You're going to have more contentment. Who wants contentment? Come on, hands up. Okay, I know the rest of you have your hands down. Your hand is up inside your heart, all right? Just say, yeah, I want contentment. Life can be a pain in the neck sometimes, and, and it is. And things are a mess at times, and the world is just on this 
steep decline and things are unraveling. You know, the whole creation, as we're told in Romans chapter 8, is crying out, you know, come, come for the sons of God to be renewed so that, so that everything will be restored. We're longing for that. We want to be longing for that. And we need this deep contentment. But how does it come? Well, again, by growing in our hope. Listen to what Paul says in verse 8. This is great. He says, For since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And so he's saying here, if you have this hope, this certainty, this wonderful assurance of your future inheritance, that will function in your Christian life like a helmet. And I'll be fastened, securely fastened. And of course, what do helmets do? Well, we all know that. They protect your head. They protect your head if you're a motorcyclist or you're in the army. You need that helmet on. As Christians, we need, spiritually, this this hope of salvation, which will function like a helmet, which will protect our brains, protect our minds against discouragement and disillusionment because there's heaps of things in this world that will drag you down, seek to get the better of you. And the answer is hope of salvation. And so this church, as we've already seen, they were strong. They had a strong faith and they had strong love for each other. But some of them lack this hope of salvation. We need all of the above. We need love for each other. We need this faith. But we need this helmet of hope if we're actually going to be content. Content. Experiencing the deep-seated peace of God. No matter what happens in your life, all the storms that will be chucked your way, you'll be able to, you know, it's not going to be easy. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you'll, you'll have ballast. You'll be able to be sturdy you won't give in you won't give up because of this helmet that will be firmly secure yeah so contentment secondly is something our text doesn't draw out but I want to draw out because of its importance action action if we are a people of hope through comprehension and through contemplating the things we already know the result will be yes contentment but it won't be idle contentment like you know I'm just so happy that I have the peace of God but everyone else oh well you know, they can, they can go to hell. Or, no, there'll be this concern for the world. There'll be concern for injustice in the world. There'll be concern for people's souls because we won't want people to experience, verse 3, peace and safety, and then there'll be sudden destruction. We'll be like, hold on, there go I, but by the grace of God, I would have experienced that, but by his grace. And so there'll be this concern. There'll be action, in other words. C.S. Lewis, he draws this out in his classic work, Mere Christianity. He says this quote, he says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. I'm sure that we all want to do stuff for Christ. We want to promote the kingdom, advance the kingdom. How is that going to happen? Well, according to Lewis, C.S. Lewis, it's as we reflect on the world to come, this certain hope that we have, he goes on. It is since Christians have largely ceased to, to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Basically, what C.S. Lewis is saying, he's saying this, show me a man, show me a woman who is actually advancing the kingdom of God, you know, by standing up against injustice in the world or doing work so that this human flourishing, seeing your work through that way, also kind of spreading and being about the gospel. Show me that person and I will show you a person whose mind is jam-packed full of heavenly-mindedness, future-mindedness, because the two are Linked, And so there'll be contentment, yes, but also there'll be action, action. So we need comprehension and we need contemplation. 
to actually think about the things that we already know. Allow them to go down deep into our hearts. There's increased hope and, and anticipation. Last thing, and this is going to be very brief, even though this is the main point of application in our text, I'm just going to speak to it very quickly because I think we're doing this really well as a church, and that is consolation. Consolation. What does this mean? It means becoming a community that stands with each other, goes the distance with each other, offers a shoulder for another person to weep on, um, just encouraging one another because, as I've already said a few times already in this sermon, things are hard in this life. Things, things won't always go from good to better. They actually can go from bad to worse. That's reality, and I think we struggle with that in the West. In the West, we think there will always be progress. There will always be development. I, 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 don't th- I think that's wishful thinking because the so- social fabric of our you know, uh, culture is just kind of unraveling which means things won't always be better. In fact, a lot of people today, people growing up are now realizing that things are going to be not better for them, but worse for them. The previous generations, it was a lot better, and things are going to get tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher in our Western cultures. And so what do we need? Well, we need each other. That's the point. Verse 18 of chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these things. So he says, look, I've just told you a bunch of things to encourage your heart, pastorally console you. But whatever you do, yeah, take them in, take them in, but don't let them stay in. Actually go out and encourage someone else. Go to that brother and sister who's struggling and remind them about who they are in Jesus and what they will enjoy with Jesus and all the future glory they're going to experience. We remind them, encourage and console them. Verse 11 of chapter 5, therefore encourage one another. You see his point? You see his point? And build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Church, I think we are doing this, as I mentioned. But you know, we can always grow. I can grow in being a better pastor to encourage you, to love you, to serve you that way constantly reminding you yeah it's hard it's tough this is a bad storm yeah it's difficult but look up look up Christian look up look ahead look to your future glory your future reward your future inheritance and we need to start doing that more to each other with each other so if you're not in a connect group because I guess this is where we see it expressed in this church in PCC then please give yourself to that Give yourself to a small group where people will be able to encourage you this way and you in turn will be able to encourage others this way as well. Because when we do, guess what will happen? We will grow in hope. We'll grow in this joyful, patient anticipation. So there you have it, church. That's enough from me. How about we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Wow, your word is living. Thank you, Lord. It helps us. It informs us, but not only that, it transforms us as we think about it, as we allow its truths to penetrate and permeate our lives, our innermost beings. And so I pray, Lord God, for your people, God. I don't know exactly what everyone here is going through, but you do and you are with them. And I pray that they would find a church community, a little small group to bless them, help them, encourage them, console them. Father, I pray that as a church, you will intensify our comprehension, Lord. We'll have a growing understanding of your word, in particular here, the future aspect 
aspect of the gospel, this wonderful hope that we have, Lord, that we'll be able to contemplate, Lord, that we live in busy uh, you know, times. And I just ask, Lord God, would you enable us just carve out time each day to reflect, to reflect, to reflect on the things that we already know so that those things, Lord God, bring about life within us. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.